This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. I always ask our tellers if they have an opinion about what I say when I introduce their story. This week's teller, company member Julie Ganey, mentioned how all her stories revolve around her, quote, voracious need for control. As a decidedly type B human myself, I'm more than happy to give the power over to Julie in this case and mention exactly that. On this episode, join Julie as she explores how chasing after control can sour even the most beloved of hobbies. Recorded live at Flower Firm in Chicago in November 2019, Second Story is proud to present The Librarian. I knock lightly on Dorothy's bedroom door. Come on in, she calls. My 16-year-old daughter is sprawled on her bed, and when I open the door, she tilts her head toward me and smiles, eyebrows raised, though her eyes stay glued to the phone in her hands, and her thumbs keep sweeping as she scrolls through her Instagram or Snapchat or whatever other scrolly thing she is on. She's worked hard all summer at a kid's camp, at a coffee shop. She got her summer homework done weeks ago. But even so, my eyes wander to the novel placed within arm's reach on her desk, untouched. I think literally untouched all summer. What's up? She asks. Oh, dinner will be ready in five, baby, I say as I back out and close her door. The fact that my teenager did not read a single book this summer has taken up an outsized portion of my brain space recently. Back in June, I'd said, honey, are there any books you'd like me to pick up for you to read over the summer? Hmm, not really, she'd said. The unopened novel on her desk is one her cousin had raved about over the 4th of July and that I, not at Dorothy's request, picked up for her the next day. Dorothy used to read a lot. I mean, back when she was nine, without a single suggestion from her father or me, she logged so many summer reading hours that she won herself a Kindle fire from the PTA at her school. The next year, there were desperate nighttime runs to Barnes and Noble and a vacation in Italy where Dorothy walked around so engrossed in books that her father and I had to say, put that book down. We are trying to have an actual experience here. But something had changed, and I was all worked up about it. Why are you so obsessed with this? My husband, Brad, asks from the couch. She does tons of reading at school. She's tired of looking at printing on a page. Why does it bother you so much? I don't know. I just, I never imagined that she wouldn't always love reading, I say as I move past him to the kitchen. My earliest memories revolve around once a week Ganey family reading night, instituted by my father, which involved all six of us, four kids and my parents, piled on the pull-out sofa bed after dinner, reading. If you weren't old enough to read, you looked at the pictures or my mother read to you. 
By the time I was in fourth grade, my father was handing me volumes. The old curiosity shop, Emily Dickinson anthologies. I mean, things way beyond my reading level that I struggled through anyway. Because that was a currency between my father and me, and I, I loved it. We had long discussions, or maybe looking back it was just my father expounding, about the symbolism and the themes and the deeper meanings in the writing. I spent my summers on my bike, bouncing between the Crystal City public pool and the public library. It was small and sparsely stocked, but it was cool and quiet. It smelled like old books and new carpet, and you could hardly tell it used to be the Quick Mart. I would lie on the floor between the stacks, a pile of books next to me, undisturbed for hours. It, maybe it was the joy I felt at the library that inspired me when I was 10 years old to make a bold proclamation over breakfast. Using my cereal spoon for emphasis, I announced to my siblings, I'm going to turn all the books in our house into a real library. I'll be the librarian. As the oldest, my authority was already well established. I was the teacher when we played school, the doctor when we played hospital, and the priest when we played church. From now on, you have to check anything out that you want to read through me, I said. But why? asked my brother Christopher. Well, this way, we'll always know where the books are, and no one will be able to hog them. This was met with confusion. Also, I'm going to donate all of the fines collected to the St. Vincent de Paul Society. <laughs> there are fines, my mother asked from the kitchen. Or I'm going to buy little rosaries and stick them in people's mailboxes. Uh, no, my mother sputtered. A, a St. Vincent de Paul is a good idea. <laughs> a flurry of busy work ensued. I decided that the Dewey Decimal System was unnecessarily complicated, so I arranged the books alphabetically according to title on six different bookcases throughout the house. All the family and kids' books from Dr. Seuss to the Chronicles of Narnia. I labeled little squares of scrap paper and tucked one into each book to be collected during the checkout process. I crafted official-looking library cards. The public library charged 10 cents for a library card, and so I decided would I. I borrowed a nifty adjustable date stamp from my father. I set up my circulation desk on the piano bench in the living room, and I waited for customers. <laughs> Compliance was an issue right away. People forgot about the library system, and they just helped themselves to books. But this is my book, my sister Rosemary protested, clutching where the wild things are to her chest. It's not yours. Well, the librarian at the public library doesn't own the books either, I explained. She's there to keep the books safe, which is what I'm doing. This is due one week from today, I said, stamping the date in the book. But it's okay if you bring it back late. Your fine will be donated to the poor. I spent hours 
dusting the books with my mom's fancy feather duster, adjusting the books so they sat smoothly at the front lip of the shelves, double-checking the order of the books after cavalier readers had rifled through them. Eventually, my father sat me down for a talk. Do you know what fascism is? He leaned forward on our corduroy couch, elbows on his knees. He talked about dictators, control, and oppression. Libraries are about access, he explained. They exist to eliminate barriers between people and books. Your library seems to be about something else. <clears throat> My response was to double down and put a limit on the number of books a person could check out at one time. <clears throat> As if the answer to losing control was to exert more of it. And this is what I find myself thinking about as I finish making dinner in my kitchen. The library became one of those funny incidents from our childhood that my sisters still bring up with a grieved disbelief every now and then when we come across one of my handwritten property of the Ganey Library book plates and an old volume of Treasure Island or Heidi on my parents' bookshelves. But now, in my kitchen, setting the table, pulling a chicken out of the oven. The memory of the library is uncomfortable, not cute or funny. It's an unwelcome reminder of how difficult I find it to love anything without trying to manage and manipulate it. Books, my family, my daughter. My fixation on Dorothy's reading is not about fostering love or providing access. It's about control. But books and stories are how I have navigated all of the life between where she is now and where I am. The breakups, the, the profound loneliness, the failing, the not knowing what I was doing or where I was going, the death of my mother, the straight-up shitty days, the moments when I just couldn't stand to be myself or be with myself. Books pointed the way past the muck. All those words, variously arranged, they expanded my perspective. They gave me an escape, a different way of seeing things. Watching Dorothy skip down the stairs, take her place at the dinner table, in this house, she'll be leaving in a year and a half when she goes off to college. I don't know what to do about my terror. It's sending her out into the world without the tool I've always used to find my way back to myself. As I watch Dorothy dig into the mashed potatoes, though, some part of me realizes that all any of us can do is to make our tools accessible to each other. We can't force another person to pick them up and use them. It's a dangerous idea to believe there is only one right way to do things or one right way to be. So, though I haven't figured it all out, 
it's enough at this moment to take a deep breath, allow my daughter to pass on the salad, and eat my own dinner. This story was produced by Ali Drum, curated by Amanda Delheimer, directed by Lexi Saunders, with music and sound design by DJ Dapper and Jeff Schaller. The Second Story podcast is produced by Max Spitz. Second Story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, Skadden Arp Slate Meager and Flom, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, CoBank, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.